John 4, 19-26, the title of my sermon is Prophet, Priest, and King. Jesus is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. Here's the big idea, it's rather long, so bear with me. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, the one who, and this is him as prophet, speaks the word of God as priest, brings sinners to God, and as king, defeats the enemies of God and rules over the people of God. And all God's people said, amen, that's a lot. Um, I have a good friend, and he's out of state right now, and so I won't embarrass him, but I have a good friend uh, who is a true Renaissance man. Who's ever met a true Renaissance man? And maybe you're wondering, what is a Renaissance man? I've never even heard that term. This refers to someone who has many talents or areas of expertise. They're good at everything they do. They can do anything, right? I mean, have you known someone like that? You're like, man, you can do everything, and you do it well. I can do a lot of things, but I don't do them all well. This brother, and again, I'm not going to mention who it is, but he's a trapper. Like, people still trap animals? Yeah, he traps them and eats them. He's a trapper. He's a hunter. He's a knife maker. He has his own forge, and he makes knives. It's incredible. He's a cook, he's an electrician, and he's a builder, built homes. Uh, He's served as a soldier, he's a marine, and a hunting guide in South Texas. This guy can do it all. Again, he is a Renaissance man. And and the reason I mention that, that is how Jesus is described in our passage. He is the prophet. He is the priest. He is, yes, the king. Now, we resume John 4 with verse 19. And it reads, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So let's pick up where we left off two weeks ago, just to provide some much needed context. Okay, so recall what we learned about the Samaritan woman two weeks ago. And again, this is a woman, she's a Samaritan. Jews did not interact with Samaritan. They viewed Samaritans as half-breeds. Strict Jews would go around this area because they thought, even if we're in this area where Samaritans reside, we're going to become ceremonially unclean, okay? And so they didn't talk to them, they didn't interact with them, and again, in this culture, men did not talk to women. Jesus is breaking all those taboos. Uh, He, again, travels right directly through this area. There's a woman at a well who has, uh, I would say, less than a stellar reputation, right? I mean, she's been married multiple times. She's with a man right now. We learn that she's not even married to him, okay? And Jesus goes to her, talks to her. And we're going to read about that interaction more this morning. But here's what we learned two weeks ago. Through her encounter with Jesus, we learn that not only is she an idolater, an idolater is someone who has what? They have idols, okay? But that her idols are the ones that are most common to humanity. What she worships, what she's put on the throne of her heart is what mankind typically worships in place of Jesus and puts on the throne of their hearts. We talked about four things. Number one, works. It's one of her idols, works. Two, man-made religion. Three, wealth and ease. And four, sex or relationships. So the Samaritan woman was looking to the world for satisfaction and fulfillment. The point of our passage two weeks ago, that was again John 4, I'll say 1 to 18, is that only Jesus can meet our deepest needs. 
Only Jesus can eternally satisfy, because only Jesus can give us what? Living water, which is eternal life with God. So Jesus makes his most startling statement in verses 16 to 18, thereby disarming this woman completely. And this results in her awestruck exclamation, which is verse 19. So let's go back. I want to start in verse 16 and read to 18. Now listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. What? What? I mean, Jesus and this woman were not pen pals. They weren't family. They weren't friends. Jesus knows everything about her. How? Why? Because he's, he's God. He knows that she's been looking to the world to provide what only he can. And her response begins in verse 19. And this is where we're going to pick up this morning. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. There's something different about you. I mean, how could you know this? What we're going to see, and this is so helpful, what we're going to see in our passage, again, John 4, 19 to 26, is that Jesus is prophet, he's priest, and he's, he's king. And this is what we need. We need Jesus because he's prophet, and he's priest, and he's king. And each, listen to this, each of the roles inherent to these positions or vocations speaks to our greatest needs. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Here's the simple movement of John 4, 1 to 26. Let me just summarize this. Like the woman at the well, we too are needy. We're needy. And like the woman, we foolishly look to the world to meet our needs, to satisfy and fulfill us. The problem, the world cannot solve our problem. Is true? The world can't do it. What we see in our passage this week is that only Jesus can meet our greatest needs. Only he can fulfill because he alone is prophet, priest, and king. So what I wish to do this morning, let me just set it up. I want us to unpack the implications surrounding these three titles that are applied to Jesus and what that means for us. I think all of us maybe have heard that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And maybe you're thinking, okay, so what? What does that mean for me? What does it mean for Kelty's First Baptist Church? That's what we're going to look at. It means, and let me just review, and this is from the big idea. It means this, that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. It means that Jesus speaks the word of God. It means that Jesus brings sinners to God. It means that Jesus defeats the enemies of God, and rules over the people of God. Friends, we need his word. Amen? And he is the prophet who speaks the word of God. We need his word. We need his presence. We need his presence. We need his victory. And we need him to rule over our lives. And he can meet those needs because he's prophet, priest, and king. So let's start with number one, the prophet. Jesus is the prophet. Verse 19 again, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He is the prophet. He's the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Now, this is God's word. 
This is Moses speaking. Moses was a prophet. Moses spoke the word of God to the people of God. And this is what Deuteronomy 18.15 says. It's a promise. The Lord your God, Moses says, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. Okay, so very simply, Moses is saying, hey, there's going to come a prophet from you, God's going to send him, and you better listen to him, okay? You better listen to him. Now, the Jews, during Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, they were expecting the fulfillment of this promise. They were awaiting the prophet to come. A final prophet like Moses who would rescue God's people, who would lead God's people, and who would speak God's word to God's people. Now, the Father, we believe in one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who remembers in the Gospels, there's two scenes in the Gospels where we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit present. Okay, there's one at the beginning of the Gospels at Jesus' baptism, and there's one about halfway through the Gospels, and that's on a mountain. And on this mountain, the Father affirms that Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15. The Father affirms that this guy, this one, this is my son, and he is the promised prophet to come. This is in Mark 9. And this is the Father speaking. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. And this is what the Father said of the Son. This is my beloved Son. And here's him quoting from Deuteronomy 18.15. Listen to him. What does the end of Deuteronomy 18.15 say? Again, the Lord's going to raise up from among you a prophet like me. And it is to him you shall what? You shall listen. The Father's saying, this is the one you've been waiting for. What was the prophet's job in the Old Testament? What did prophets do? The role of the prophet in the Old Testament was very simply to speak the word of God to the people of God. A prophet would typically begin his speech with the formulaic saying, thus says the Lord, which would prepare his listeners for what's to come. What's to come comes from who? The prophet's speaking, but whose words is he bringing forward? God's word, right? So the prophet was tasked, this was his task, with speaking the word of God to the people of God. Again, why listen to a prophet? Why? I mean, why, why listen to the prophet to come? Because they speak the word of who? Of God. What was the problem with the woman at the well? She was settling for the word of man, namely what the world said. The world had told her. This is what the world had told this woman, this Samaritan woman. You just need another man. That's all you need, right? I mean, she had five, and now she's on her sixth. Was that working out for her? Obviously not. But the world says that today. You just need another man or another woman. You just need a life of ease. And she listened. She listened to the word of man, to the word of the world. What the world says and what the Bible says we need, what the world says we need and what the Bible says we need are diametrically opposed. They are polar opposites. Would you agree with that? What does the world say we need? Here's some examples. More money. You just need more money and you'll be happy. You need more likes. If you know me, you know I'm not a social media guy. Um, I can't even name all the different, we call them platforms, but... 
I know a lot of people, they hunger for those likes. You just need more likes. You need more attention. You need more autonomy. That's what the world says we need. More power, more prestige. I love John. I love the gospel of John. Why do we need God's word more than anything else? What do we learn about God's word in John's gospel? This is really helpful. I want to focus on three things, okay? Again, Jesus is the prophet, so he speaks the word of God. Why do we need God's word? Why do we need it? Three passages in John. First is John 5, 39. You can write this down. John 5, 39. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Oh, here's the first thing. The word of God reveals who? It reveals Jesus, the author of life. Why do we need the word? Because the word reveals who? It reveals Jesus. All right, that's the first passage in John's gospel. The second is John 6, 68. Simon Peter answered him, and, and I'll give a little context here. John 6 is a long chapter. It's a difficult chapter. It's a wonderful chapter. Jesus says some really hard things. I'm the bread of life. Eat me. That's what he says. Eat me. Take me in. And at the end of this passage, you know, drink my blood. Eat my flesh. Well, he's not being literal. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's saying, take me in. Take me into your life. Receive me. But some just couldn't deal with that. They're, I don't understand. This is too hard. And so some who were following Jesus, they said, we're out. It's just too difficult. It's too tough. I don't get it. And Jesus looks at his disciples. Are you guys going to leave as well? And what does, Jesus, what does Peter say? Peter's kind of like the spokesperson for the disciples. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Whoa. You have the words of what? Eternal life. So that's the second point. Jesus' words lead to eternal life. The third passage is John 17, 17. Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he says to the Father about his disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Again, this is Jesus' prayer to the Father for his followers. He prays that his followers would be what? Sanctified. To sanctify means to make holy or more like the Lord. Jesus prays that this would happen by what means? How do we grow in holiness or likeness to the Lord according to the Lord? By his what? By his truth. By his, by his word. Through the word we are sanctified. So, the word reveals the Lord, leads to life with the Lord, and leads to us becoming more like the Lord. Is there anything more important than this? <laughs> Jesus is the prophet who speaks the very word of God. And what does the word do? One more time. It reveals the Lord. It leads to eternal life with the Lord. And it leads to us becoming more like the Lord. Come to Jesus, the prophet, who speaks the very word of God. Here's some application questions. I want us to think about these things. In light of this title being applied to Jesus, he is the prophet who speaks the word of God. Number one, does the word of the Lord take priority in your life? Does his word take priority in your life? You know, Chris, I'm busy. I'm really busy. I read it when I can. I'll get around to it. I think I made a resolution last month that I'd read it more, and I haven't really stuck to that. Or... Like the psalmist in Psalm 119, oh, 
Do you treasure this word? Is it more valuable to you than riches? Is it sweeter than honey to the taste? So again, does the word of the Lord, does God's word, does the Bible take priority in your life? Two, how are you growing in your understanding of God's word? What are you doing to grow in your understanding of this book? Are you gathering with the church? Are you gathering with other believers? The third question I have is, how are you protecting your heart and your mind against competing voices? Jesus warns against that in John 10. There's a lot of voices out there that are saying, come, listen, follow. How are you guarding your heart and mind against those competing voices? Well, how do we uh, recognize a counterfeit by knowing the what? The authentic. The more time you spend here, the more easily you'll recognize what is not true. Does that make sense? All right. Number two, Jesus is the priest. He's the priest, and that's verses 20 to 24. He's the prophet. He speaks the word of God. Amen? I mean, come on, we need that word. What does it do? It reveals the Lord. It leads to life, eternal life with the Lord, and it leads to us becoming more like the Lord. I mean, come on, we need that. Therefore, we need the prophet. We need Jesus. Second, Jesus is the priest. Verses 20 to 24 Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. This is the woman speaking. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. And here's where we're going to spend a lot of time under point two. The hour is coming, and it's now here, Jesus says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people. (laughs) That's important. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. I mean, for Jesus to repeat that, to say it twice, means what? Come on. Why are things repeated? They're important, right, for emphasis. All right, so not only is Jesus the prophet, but he is the, number two, he's the priest. And this is a major theme in the book of Hebrews, namely that Jesus is our great high priest. What was the job of the priest in the Old Testament? The job of the prophet was to speak the word of God. So if the prophet spoke the word of God, what did the priest do? The priest of God, right, if you're a priest, the priest of God connected sinful people to a holy God through sacrifice and service. One more time. The priests of God connected sinful people to a holy God through sacrifice and service. Jesus' job was to do what? To connect sinful people to a holy God. And how did he do that? By providing atonement through his what? Through his sacrifice. Jesus died so that we could live with who? With the Lord forever. Amen? I mean, John 14, 6, Jesus said to them what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Furthermore, let me, let me just um, let me add a little bit more to this. I'm, I'm giving very, again, uh, elementary definitions. Um, but let me add to this. The, the priest was tasked with overseeing the worship of, or worship service of God's people. Now, what did that mean? They were responsible, the priests, again, we were in Exodus not too long ago, so a lot of this should sound familiar. 
the priests were responsible for making sure that everything that needed to be present was present, and that everything that was supposed to be done was done according to God's perfect instruction in his word, right? So in the worship service, everything that needs to be there, priest's job, make sure it's there. Everything that's being done is done according to God's instruction found in his what? In his perfect word. Now, a major theme surrounding Israel's worship was the theme of place. Would you agree with that? That for Israel, it mattered where they worshipped? Could they just worship any old way, anywhere they chose? No. Right? Again, in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we see that it matters where God's people worship. After being rescued, what did God say? What was his instruction? You're to come back to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and you're to what? You're to worship me. Not just any old mountain, but the mountain that God said. And again, in the middle of Exodus, we see that God gives instructions for a tabernacle. That was the place of worship. And then if you continue to read in the Old Testament and we get to King Solomon, there's a temple, right? And so it matters where location matters. But Jesus says something staggering in our passage. Place no longer matters. What? I mean, guys, this was... <laughs> we're not Jews, and so this, I mean, we can... We can understand the Old Testament, and, oh, yeah, it's a big deal, because, I mean, again, they, they had the Garden of Eden, and then the tabernacle, and then the temple. And Jesus, here, he's saying, you know, place no longer matters, but rather presence, namely the Lord's presence. And we'll, we'll come back to this shortly. What we learn in our passage is that the Samaritans worshipped in one place, and Jews worshipped in another place. But Jesus' coming marked the beginning of a new age, and this is signified by the word hour. Jesus says the hour is coming and is now what? It's now here. With Jesus, a new age or new time had dawned. So let's look at the whole verse, verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Again, according to Jesus, Place no longer is to be emphasized when it comes to worship, but rather spirit and truth. So what is meant by the phrase spirit and truth? We're to worship in spirit and in truth. According to Jesus, this is true worship. This is the worship that the Father seeks. Therefore, we better know how to answer this question. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? Now listen, why is Jesus concerned with worship? Why do you think that is? Because not only is he the prophet, but he is the, he's the priest. He's the priest. Now remember what was said earlier. According to Jesus, when it comes to worship, place no longer matters, but rather presence, namely the Lord's presence. The Lord's presence will no longer be emphasized in one location, but given to a worldwide people. What we'll see is that the Spirit of God, this is so good, what we're going to see is that the Spirit of God will now dwell individually and collectively in God's people, making the people of God the place of God. The people of God are the place of God because of the indwelling Spirit of God. Amen? That's, un that's incredible. That's unbelievable. Now, most scholars agree that the word spirit in the phrase worship in spirit and in truth refers to the who? The Holy Spirit. 
Recall John the Baptist's words in John 1.33. Again, we're, we're still trying to answer the question, okay, what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? According to Jesus, this is true worship. This is the worship that the Father seeks. So what does it mean? Well, John 1.33, this is John the Baptist. He says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes oh, with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, who's that? Who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit? Jesus. You know, the Holy Spirit, if you've been listening in our study in John's Gospel, the Holy Spirit is emphasized in the early chapters of John and throughout John, obviously. We're going to get to 14 to 16 eventually, and again, we're going to see heavy emphasis on the Spirit. Recall Jesus' words in John 3, verse 5. Jesus answered. This is his conversation with Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So according to Jesus, in order to enter the kingdom of God, one must be born of the Spirit. And entering the kingdom of God is shorthand for eternal life with God. Who gives the Spirit? Who baptizes with the Spirit? Jesus. And how is Jesus described throughout the writings of John? Again, we have two words in this phrase. Worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, so spirit refers to the Holy Spirit. Who's the truth? How is Jesus described in John's writings? Well, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the... I'm the truth. Jesus is the truth. And then if you go to 1 John 5.20, write this down. Go back and look at it. 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So who's the truth? Okay. Jesus is the truth. Now, again, I'm, I'm slowly building this, okay? At this point... What we've gathered is that true worship involves the Holy Spirit and Jesus, who is the truth. Okay? Taken together. I'm going to repeat this. So you might want to write it down. Jesus is saying, true worship happens in me and by the Spirit. True worship happens in Jesus and by the Spirit. True worship begins with who? It begins with Jesus. True worship begins with Jesus, the truth, and happens by means of the Spirit that now lives inside of Christians. Those who trust in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, are indwelt by the Spirit of God and thus function as the temple of God. Let me say that again. Those who trust in the Son of God are indwelt by the Spirit of God and thus function as the temple of God. Those who trust in the Son of God are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and thus function as the temple of God. So through faith in Jesus, the people of God become the place of God for the Spirit of God to dwell. Isn't that interesting? True worship happens in Jesus and by the Spirit. Now, several passages in the New Testament help us here. And I want to look at one, and I'll mention another for you to go back and look at on your own. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes, 
Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He's talking to believers. He's talking to the church. What does Paul say? Do you not know that you're God's temple, you church, and that God's spirit dwells in you? Well, what makes them the temple? The spirit dwelling. How did they get the spirit in the first place? By trusting in who? Trusting in Jesus. You can also look at Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So Jesus, as our great high priest, has made a way for us to be reconciled to God and indwelt by God. He's the priest, amen? What does the priest do? Connect sinners to a holy God. Christ has done that. Here's the main point. We were made to do what? We were made to worship God. That is our creative purpose. I don't care who you are or where you're from. That's what the Bible teaches. We were made to do one thing. We were made to worship God with our lives, to bring him honor and glory in all that we do. And we see that in the early chapters of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are put in God's place, the Garden of Eden, a place of worship, to worship God and right relationship and to live with him as king, to serve him. But when they disobey, when they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they do what God said don't do, they are evicted. They're kicked out from the garden and thus give up their vocation as worshipers of God. And that has been humanity's plight ever since the fall. When we're not doing what we were made to do, we will never know true joy. I promise you that. When we're not doing What we were made to do, we will never know true joy. Do you think this woman had true joy? No. I mean, she's looking to the world. There's this void in her life, and and nothing is able to fill it. Because her creative purpose has not been restored yet. Again, when we're not worshiping God, we're not doing what we were made to do, and thus we will never know true joy. Only by trusting in Jesus can we now become true worshipers and thus know true what? True joy. Because only Jesus can bring us back into fellowship with God. Because only Jesus is the, he's the priest. And again, this is shown by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Hey, I'm going to give you some advice. This is free. Never settle for a counterfeit. Okay, thanks, Chris. Who's ever been duped by a counterfeit? Don't raise your hand. Someone says, oh, and and Dave and I, Aaron as well, uh, all the pastors, we love food. I mean, I really do like food, and families brought food, and that, that was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you all, seriously. Praise God. But someone might say, hey, man, such and such place, it's, it's just as good as the original. I mean, just trust me. And you go and you sample this, and you're like, oh, no. It's a counterfeit, bro. I'm not even close, right? What's the lesson? Never settle for a counterfeit. Jesus talks about true worshipers in verse 23. The Greek word here is alithinos, and it means genuine or real. Genuine or real. True worship, which leads to true life and true joy, is only found in Jesus. Everything else is a counterfeit. If you're looking to anything or anyone other than Jesus to satisfy you and fulfill you, you have settled for a counterfeit. 
up to this point, the Samaritan woman had settled for what? For counterfeits. Don't let that be you. Jesus, as our great high priest, came to restore our creative purpose and thus our true joy. Jesus, as our priest, brings us to God to worship God. Right? He brings us to God to worship God, for that is our creative purpose. Here's some application questions to think about based on the second point. He's our priest. The first is this. Have you trusted in Jesus to become a true worshiper of God? Have you trusted in Jesus to become a true worshiper of God? That is our creative purpose. We were made for that. There's no life outside of that. There's only eternal death outside of that. There's no joy outside of that. So have you trusted in Jesus to become a true worshiper of God? Number two, how are you worshiping the Lord with your life? You know, we see in Paul, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that worship is more than just gathering once a week. It's more than just singing a song. It involves our whole life, our whole self. So the second question is this, how are you worshiping the Lord with your life, with your whole being? And number three, think about this. Are you giving your worship to anyone or anything other than God? And if so, repent. Repent. Don't settle for counterfeits. All right, number three. The king. He's prophet. He's priest and he's he's king. And that's verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Finally, in our passage, Jesus is recognized once more as the promised king. Jesus explicitly acknowledges this title in our passage. I think this is one of the more significant exchanges in the Gospel of John. These final verses in our text, verse 25 and 26. The Samaritan woman makes Jesus aware of her hope in the coming king, right? And what does Jesus say? This is incredible. He doesn't hint around. He doesn't say, you're getting close. He says, I who speak to you am he. I'm the one. I'm the king. Whoa! (laughs) That's incredible. In taking on this title, Messiah, what is Jesus affirming about himself? He is the what? He's the king. You know, what we know, if you've studied the Old Testament, what we know from the Old Testament, and if you've looked at Second Temple Judaism, if you look at, what I mean by that is this time period surrounding Jesus, I want to know, what were the Jews expecting for their king? What did they want? What did they desire? What did the Bible say, but what was their expectations as well? You know what they longed for? They longed for the king to come, to defeat the enemies of God, and to rule over God's people. Now, what do we know? What is the greatest enemy of God, God's people? What is the one thing that separates us from having a relationship with God? And what is the common denominator that affects all humanity? We're all born with this. Sin. Sin. Now, again, do we know Jesus is king? Yes. But even before this passage, even before Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, it's like, okay, that's very explicit. Again, there's no guesswork involved. He's saying it. He's taking it on himself. But before that, let's just go back a little bit. 
We see hints of this already in John's gospel. John 1.29, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the king. He's the king. John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses wrote in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The king! We found him! And then John 1.49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. But then, of course, in our passage, what does Jesus say? I who speak to you am? I'm he. I'm he. What others have said about Jesus, Jesus now confirms about himself. This final title, Messiah or King, now listen to this, follow me here, please, don't miss this. This final title, Messiah or King, answers the question posed by the second title, priest. Let me explain, okay? There's a relationship between these two titles. He's priest and he's, he's king. Jesus, as our high priest, has made a way for us sinners to have fellowship with God and once again be true worshipers of the one true God. But how? How? How has Jesus done that? What prevents fellowship with God? We've already answered this. What prevents us from being true worshipers of the one true God? Everybody say it. Sin. Sin. As the promised king, Jesus came to deal with the enemy separating us from God. The enemy that causes us to settle for counterfeits. And that enemy is sin. Jesus as king came to deal with sin once and for all through his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is king. Is he your king? Is he your king? He can be today. Amen? He can be today. I love this image for repentance. Repentance, the Greek word, means to turn away from something. Imagine a 180-degree turn. You're going one direction. And I'm not referring to the band. You're going one direction, and all of a sudden you turn around. You turn around, okay? That's rep- but I like this image as well. You're getting off the throne, right? We, we are born on the throne. We're born on the throne. It's the last place we want to be. If we're left to rule our lives independently of Christ, where will that lead us, friends? Hell. For how long? Forever. The good news, the true king has come and he's made a way for sinners like us to be reconciled to God, to have our creative purpose restored, become true worshipers of God, and thus have true joy for how long? Forever. So get off the throne and recognize Jesus as the one true king. All right, let me finish up with a few application questions and then we'll pray. Do you wish to hear the word of God? Now, what did we learn about God's word? It reveals the Lord. It leads to eternal life with the Lord, and it results in God's people becoming more like the Lord. Who speaks that word? Who's the prophet? It's Jesus. So, do you wish to hear the word of God? Come to Jesus. Come, I'm going to answer these questions for us. Come to Jesus. Do you wish to be in fellowship with God and to worship Him as He desires to be worshipped? Do you desire, this is not a trick question, do you desire true joy? Then come to Jesus, he is the priest. Do you wish to have freedom from the enemy of sin? What is that great enemy that separates sinners from a holy God? Sin. And Jesus as king came to deal with that enemy. Do you wish to have freedom from the enemy of sin? 
Do you wish to have God ruling over your life as king? Then come to Jesus. You know, what have we learned in John's gospel up to this point about Jesus? Jesus is the greatest. Amen? He is the greatest. You're shutting me off to say it's time. <laughs> he's fully God, and he's fully man. He's prophet, he's priest, and he's king. Behold him and believe because he's worthy. Amen? He's worthy. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge what you show us in your word to be true, that Jesus is prophet, he's priest, and he's king. That Jesus, you speak the word of God. That through your sacrifice, we can now be reconciled to God. That as king, you came to defeat the enemies of God and rule over God's people. I pray that all of us this morning would hear those great truths found in your word and say, yes, amen. But Father, I pray that we'd go a step further, that we'd go out into the world and proclaim these truths to our neighbors, to the lost, to our co-workers and friends and family, our classmates who don't know Jesus as Lord and King, as prophet, priest, and king. And I pray that we would tell them boldly that only Jesus can meet our greatest needs because only he can deal with sin. Only he can bring to us the word of God. And only he is fit to be king. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your your word this morning and what it's shown us. I pray that in response we would worship you, love you more, and faithfully declare your good news to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.